Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good morning, Birdlands. I'm Mark Brown. I've been blogging about the Orioles for more than a decade on CamdenChat.com and waiting for them to win the World Series for my whole life. Thanks for listening today. Let's talk some Orioles. It's now April the 26th, 2023. The Orioles are 15-8 and on the season. Their seven-game winning streak was snapped on Tuesday night, an annoying 8-6 to loss to the Boston Red Sox. Although it was nice, Cedric Mullins, of course, hit a grand slam in the ninth inning to make it 8-6, to which preserves an interesting, if maybe ultimately meaningless, fact about the 2023 Orioles season, which is that they have yet to suffer a blowout loss of five or more runs. One bit of silver lining for the Orioles. The Tampa Bay Rays were also losers, finally, so the Orioles remain four and a half games back in the American League East. The biggest problem for the Orioles, well, okay, there were two big problems. And number one is that in the beginning of the game, they had a very poor offensive performance against Red Sox starting pitcher Corey Kluber, who entered that game with an 8.50 ERA on the 2023 season. I know, probably, really no pitcher is 8.50 ERA bad, so Kluber was probably due to even out some of his earlier misfortune, and that was the way it worked out. Nonetheless, it's always annoying when you see the Orioles go up against a guy with a high ERA and they inexplicably make him look like a great pitcher. Of course, maybe even bigger problem for the Orioles, Kyle Bradish, he was absolutely blistered in the game by the Red Sox offense. He gave up seven runs on eight hits, only pitched two and a third innings, issued four walks while he was in the game. Bradish just, he didn't really have anything. He, uh, he, he just, he couldn't, he couldn't do it. And 
The Orioles, I think manager Brandon Hyde tried to keep Radish, push him as long as he could, if only to try and avoid blowing up the bullpen. Ultimately, Radish could not even manage to limp through something like four innings so that the Orioles could limit it to maybe like five innings out of the bullpen. I guess we'll see if there's any cascading negative effects from having to use Mike Bowman for as long as they did on Tuesday or Austin Voth. Although fortunately, both of those guys um, pitched pretty well and gave the Orioles... Well, I won't say they gave the Orioles a chance to get back into the game because once you've given up eight runs, you're pretty well out of the game. But they did ultimately make it eight to six. It's just a shame that Bradish was as bad as he was. And just there, there's just nothing redeemable to say about Bradish. It kind of reminded me of some of the, um, I guess I would say some of the Chris Tillman starts when he just wasn't very good. And he even had some of these in years where he was good. I have a memory of Tillman pitching against the Pirates where in the first inning he threw like 40, it might even have been 50 pitches. And I I think that was even like the first game of a doubleheader or something. It was really stupid. Anyway, Bradish, he threw 40 pitches in an inning on Tuesday as well. And I guess the thing to say about him is after this latest disaster, Bradish now has a 9.36 ERA when facing the Boston Red Sox. That's over six starts in his career, which... You know, that's not a lot of starts, but that's a non-zero number where Radish has just looked really bad against the division foe. And by the way, he's also got a 6.95 career ERA against the Toronto Blue Jays over the course of five starts in his career. So, you know, if he's going to be a successful Orioles pitcher, although there are less games against the AL East, fewer, excuse me, than there used to be, still an Orioles pitcher is going to need to be able to succeed against AL East teams to have a useful Orioles career, I think. Um, just he's he's no good against the Red Sox so far. I guess all we can hope is if he gets to face them later again this season, it goes much better. His real problem on Tuesday night, I think he's four-seam fastball. He, ha- he used this pitch last year, of course, the fastball is any pitcher's, a significant pitch for any pitcher. And it was an absolutely terrible pitch last year. According to MLB's StatCast metrics, um, Bradish basically allowed... 19 runs below the average pitcher or just on his four-seam fastball. One thing that makes it terrible is relative to other major league pitchers' four-seam fastballs, it has no horizontal movement, almost none to speak of. And so last night in in the Tuesday start, Bradish threw this pitch 42% of the time. Less than half of those pitches were in the strike zone. So in addition to not having a lot of movement on the pitch, it, 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 it didn't he wasn't making what Jim Palmer likes to call competitive pitches where they're at least close enough that the batter might start thinking about swinging at them. Another problem for Bradish, I guess, is his fastball was averaging 94 miles an hour. And when he was throwing changeups, they were actually averaging 90 miles per hour. And the golden number for fastball to change up still goes back to the number that was said by Earl Weaver in his Weaver on Baseball book where you want a 10-mile-an-hour gap between the fastball and the changeup. So if you're only throwing four miles an hour difference, you're not really given that much of a different look between your fastball and your change, which is usually going to be a problem for a pitcher. Oh, and yeah, you know what else? Bradish did not have any command for his curveball either. So the result is He gave up a ton of runs, and the Orioles were just in too deep of a hole for even an amazing ninth inning Grand Slam to make any difference in the win column. 
The challenge for the Orioles for Wednesday is going to be to finally win an AL East series. They have not done this yet in 2023. Tyler Wells is going to be pitching for the Orioles with Tanner Houck pitching today for the Red Sox. And Wells, I guess, is going to need to pitch better than Bradish and Dean Kramer have done against the Red Sox lineup because the Nationals and Tigers, well, they're bad offenses, as I've said on this podcast. The Red Sox, it looks like they're better. So Tyler Wells got a tougher challenge today. And hopefully he's going to be up to that challenge. A lingering question for the Orioles coming out of the Tuesday game is going to be what ultimately happens with Austin Hayes' injury to his hand. He had a failed bunt that had a ball bounce off of his fingers. That that reminds me of former Oriole Luis Matos. However, for Hayes, the initial x-rays were negative on his hand and fingers. So that's encouraging. The post-game update for him was that he is going to be day-to-day. So that seems like he's probably not going to go on the injured list, but also probably not going to be on the in the Orioles' starting lineup on Wednesday, possibly even Thursday, depending on how that heals. There was one other bit of baseball news that impacts my ongoing project for what I want to see happen for the Orioles on Tuesday. There was an announcement by the Pittsburgh Pirates that they've now, or they soon will be signing their star player, Brian Reynolds, to a contract extension, eight years, $106.75 million on that contract. Reynolds is 28 years old, so he's the same age and with the same service time status as Orioles shortstop Jorge Mateo. The contract for Reynolds is going to buy out his two arbitration years after this season, as well as six free agent seasons. So I've been saying through this podcast, I'd really like to see the Orioles give out a contract extension. I don't know if there's anybody on the Orioles who's exactly worth this kind of contract. Mateo, of course, he, well, okay. So Reynolds, he was worth 13.5 baseball reference war over his first four big league seasons. And remember, that includes 2020, where the season was limited to 60 games. So Reynolds, a little bit of an older player. That's just the way it worked for him when he was ultimately called up to the big leagues. So he uh, he hasn't had as much time to establish himself and then get to be a free agent at a young age. So he didn't have quite as much leverage to demand a big payday, but he's still been a pretty good, darn good player. And Pittsburgh, the lowly Pittsburgh Pirates, although they're doing very well so far this season, the low payroll Pittsburgh Pirates, even they have found a way to ink one of their key players to a long contract and keep him around for a long time. I don't know, you know, the Orioles, I think the players maybe we would want to see the Orioles sign are like 25 years old or younger, which is just a different kettle of fish. It's going to maybe need to be more years and more dollars or whatever. And there's, there's, they're maybe going to have to wait for the wave of prospects that are still in AAA right now to find someone who's like contract extension worthy. I don't know, but I, I, you know, that we had the Reds do it with Hunter Green. Now here's the Pirates. The freaking Pirates have done it with Brian Reynolds. So I just, I hope the Orioles can find somebody, put a pin and say, yes, this is a guy we're absolutely going to build around for not just the years before he's a free agent, but for some of the years where he would be a free agent as well. It just hasn't happened yet. There are, there are no like serious multi-year commitments on the books. I'd like to see that change. I don't know when it will. I guess if you're a pessimist, you might be concerned that Tuesday's development where a New York, uh, the the highest court in New York ruled against the 
Masson and the Orioles' side of the case over the dispute over paying Nationals TV rights fees for the 2012 to 2016 period. Yes, we are seven years beyond the period where that money was supposed to be paid out. It's been tied up in litigation since then. It seems like this latest decision means that about $105 million that's been held in escrow is going to have to be paid out to the Nationals. I think that, I guess that's not great for Orioles team finances because they're making less money off of the television network that they own that was set up with the idea that they would be able to make money off of the Nationals. Well, Commissioner Rob Manfred came along and basically pulled a Darth Vader and said, I'm altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. And we'll see if there's any more fallout from that. But my stance is that if the Orioles are so hamstrung by this massive decision, then the freaking Angelos family needs to sell the team to somebody that's actually going to spend the money. I don't know what's going to happen, but they can't use that as an excuse. It would be really dumb, dishonest, and offensive to me. So... That's how I feel about that. I will be right back after a message from a Fans First Sports Network sponsor. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, so let's dig into the mailbag. I've got an email today from Johnny, a listener in the United Kingdom. Johnny, thank you for listening. And Johnny asked me about catcher framing. He wanted to know what does it mean for a catcher to be considered a great framer and how good is Adley Rutschman at it, at that skill? So Johnny and anyone else who's not really familiar with what the people mean when they talk about catcher framing, just remember, okay, so the rule book strike zone is letters to knees, the width of home plate, right? 
So the way it works out is the kind of the quote unquote human element of baseball is that some umpires are better at calling this rulebook strike zone than others. Uh, and then there are some catchers who are better at nudging umpires with the way that they catch pitches to make it look like a pitch was actually in the strike zone. They receive the pitch and then immediately but subtly move their glove into the strike zone. So the umpire in between the time when the ball passes the strike zone, the split second where it goes through the strike zone and then is in the catcher's glove, what they see is the catcher's glove in the strike zone. Sometimes some catchers can get an umpire to call a strike that was a ball, or catchers who are no good at uh, at pitch framing can sometimes end up having a pitch that was clearly in the strike zone be called a ball instead of the strike that it should be. So if you want to get a sense of how this is measured, you can Google, just Google MLB StatCast catcher framing. And what you will find when you look at that link is the uh, MLB StatCast keeping track of what they call catcher framing runs. And so you can see kind of the wheat separated from the chaff in which catchers are saving runs for their teams with their framing skill. And then you can also see which catchers are hurting their teams with their framing lack of ability. So for Adley Rutschman so far this year, headed into Tuesday's games, he was actually at a net zero runs, which that that sounds average, but actually that's in the top quarter of catchers so far this season. Um, Many more catchers are not good than catchers who are good. So Adley just being even zero through his game so far is actually okay. Last year, Rutschman ended up at plus four framing runs over the course of the full season. And relevant for the Orioles is that their other catcher, Robinson Chirinos, who began the season as the starting catcher and then transitioned into the backup role once Rutschman came along, well, he was the 60th out of 60 qualified catchers, uh, which was about if you received 950 pitches. That I believe that was the qualified threshold. So he was the worst, minus 14 runs single-handedly. And if you were curious, the best was New York Yankee catcher Jose Trevino, who, you know, it's really annoying to me. Anytime a Yankee's good at anything, Trevino single-handedly plus 17 runs, which is amazing. Um, Adley Rutschman kind of has an, a reputation for being an elite framer. That doesn't quite show up that strongly in the StatCast catcher framing. Some of the other baseball stat websites keep their own um, framing information, and some of them score Rutschman a little bit better. But I think that it's good that he's a big improvement over Robinson Chirinos, and it's also going to be important, I think, for backup catcher James McCann to do better than Chirinos did. And James McCann, so far this season, is also at zero runs. So You know, that's a subtle difference, but nonetheless, a big one for the Orioles if they can maybe have their catchers be, you know, something like 15 runs better just from catching pitches than last year. Now, my one final word on catcher framing, it seems like it's maybe going to go the way of the Dodo if Major League Baseball successfully implements the automatic strike zone, which is kind of being tested in the minor leagues so far. I am... I don't mind that, although it's annoying that the Orioles finally got a good catcher at framing and then it's maybe going to go away. Uh, Over the last several years, we had to watch, like, when Pedro Severino was the Orioles catcher, he was really, really bad at pitch framing. Just really bad. He was uh, about as bad as Chirinos, and of course, he was the primary catcher a whole season. So, 
you know, that's kind of annoying. But the fact is, a strike should be a strike according to the rulebook. And umpires generally get like 94% accuracy. The good ones can do even better than that. The bad ones do a little bit worse. And, you know, every pitcher deserves to have a 100% accurate called game. Pitchers and, and, and batters both deserve to have 100% accurate judgments all the time. I guess we'll see if that technology eventually comes. But for now, Adley Rutschman, he's pretty good. Doesn't measure the best on StatCast, but again, he's in the top quarter of catchers so far this season, and that's that's pretty good. So thank you again, Johnny, for writing in. Anyone else, if you would like to email me with a question or topic for discussion, you can write at camdencastpod at gmail.com. I will try to read off at least one email every episode. So let's move on, roll through my prospect of the day segment. This, again, is using the composite top 20 list that I put together on camdenchat.com of five publications, Orioles prospect lists. I just threw them all in an average, and what came out is a composite top 20. So for today, we've moved on to number eight, Kobe Mayo, or as I like to say, Kobe Mayo, hon. He is as high as number four on one of those five prospect lists, as low as number 10, but came out at number eight overall. Mayo was drafted by the Orioles in the 2020 draft. They picked him in the fourth round. He was an overslot signing with the extra money that the Orioles saved for themselves in their draft bonus pool by going under slot, surprising people by going under slot and picking Heston Kerstad at the number two pick in that draft. We will have some more to say about Kerstad a couple episodes down the line from now. Mayo was drafted from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in high school. So that actually means he was a sophomore at the time of the shooting, the Parkland shooting that killed 17 students and staff at his high school. And the reason I remember that is because shortly after he was drafted, he gave an interview, and I believe he's said this on multiple occasions since, where he kind of feels like he is trying to make his big league dream happen for all of the all of his fellow students who were killed that day and they didn't get to grow up to try and live out their dreams. I I find that very touching on a human level. It doesn't mean that Mayo is going to make it to the Major League Baseball or necessarily succeed just because that's a great story. Every prospect has a pretty good story, but you know, it I think it's going to be that much sweeter if Mayo can make it and that's uh that's something that's in his mind as he's succeeding as a big leaguer. Um but as far as his draft prospect status, he was on the Fangraphs ranking of the 2020 draft class. He was the number 67 prospect. They were, a, they were big fans of what he might have to offer. And Fangraphs, it turns out, is still the big boosters of Kobe Mayo. Um, he was a bit lower as a draft prospect on, for instance, the MLB Pipeline draft ranking that year, who had him at number 132, which that's just kind of a guy who's in the pack a name who's maybe worth knowing if you're really going to be thorough, but is uh, is not really one of the more exciting guys who's going to get like a serious two or three million dollar bonus as an overslot signing or whatever. Um, the Fangraphs draft prospect ranking for putting Mayo at number 67, their quick capsule on him at the time said, quote, he might outgrow the infield, but he has a big frame and surprising bat control for his size, end quote. And as I said, they are still the big boosters on Kobe Mayo. They are the ones that put him at number four. And now about him, here's some of the things they had to say about Mayo heading into the 2023 season. Quote, Mayo's swing is wacky looking and odd, but it clearly works for him. 
He has no underlying swing and miss issues, and his massive six foot five inch frame still has room to add strength. End quote. They believe that although he's been playing third base as a pro, he's ultimately destined for right field, where he will be able to have some success because he has a strong arm, and he also runs well enough to uh, get to many balls in outfield corners, which, as you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, Orioles corner outfielders currently are not succeeding very well at that basic thing. And Fangraphs, the reason why, another reason why they put him at number four in the Orioles system is they think he has real star potential if he's able to take raw power, his raw power to another level. Uh, On the 20 to 80, the weird baseball 20 to 80 scouting scale, they think Mayo could end up at 70 raw power, which would make him, well, raw power is different from game power, but somebody with 70 power has the potential to be one of the game's elite home run hitters. And so I guess we'll see if Kobe Mayo can grow into that or at least a little bit more of it. Um, he's currently scouted by Fangraphs for growing into 60 game power, which would make him something like a 30 home run player per year, which is still pretty darn good. Mayo, so far in the 2023 season, he's hitting 250 with a 364 on base percentage, 482 slugging percentage, hitting a home run every 18.7 at-bats. I think, ultimately, if the Orioles are going to find that Mayo is a successful prospect, he's probably going to look a lot like that. Maybe you could hope for a little bit more power, but 250, that's a respectable batting average if you are walking enough to get a uh, an on-base percentage that's at least 100 points above the batting average, which, as of now, he is. That gives you an isolated slugging percentage from 250 to 482 of... 2.232, which again, that's plenty respectable power. If he maybe kicked that up a little bit to something like a 500 slugging percentage or a little bit more, that would be better. But, you know, that that's a good major league player if he was able to port that current double A batting line ahead to the major league level, which of course is not a guarantee. And the Orioles, although every scout seems to think that Mayo is headed for right field, the Orioles have still mostly not moved Mayo off of the third base spot. So maybe they won't do that until he heads up to Norfolk, where the infield is pretty crowded right now and the outfield is much less crowded. Uh, Maybe they'll slide Mayo over to first base, although it feels like if Mayo has as strong of an arm as Fangraphs and other places say, first base might be kind of wasting his arm. But you know, it's never bad to put a power hitter at first base, I guess. Um, I feel like a future role for Kobe Mayo, I'm I'm buying on all of the prospect writers who think he's ending up in right field. So I think he could maybe be a right fielder starting in the middle of next season. I think that it's, it's not quite going to happen this season, partly because he's at Bowie now and partly because the picture ahead of him is just so crowded. I, I, I don't think the Orioles are going to move on from any of Cedric Mullins, Austin Hayes, or Anthony Santander during the 2023 season. Maybe they'll surprise me, and if that happens, then maybe that opens up a spot for Mayo sooner. But, um, you know, I, I'm a believer. I, I like that Fancrafts is excited about him, and I hope that he is able to live up to that scouting report. So that's all I've got for this show today. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider subscribing on your favorite platform and leaving a rating or review, or, you know, just tell a friend or family member who's an Orioles fan. There are new episodes of Good Morning Birdland every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning, so I'll be back here with you again on Friday. You can tweet me between now and then at Camden Chat. Good Morning Birdland is a Camden Cast production on the Fans First Sports Network. Until next time, go O's.